thankful to be here with you. <clears throat> Today, we learn Jesus used this piece of farming equipment to illustrate the importance of a relationship with him. How about this? Oh, yeah, I was thinking, you know, I mentioned this to the kids before I started. This is a yoke, y'all don't know. This is a farming yoke. I mentioned to Caleb and Luke that maybe they, if they would, they would wear this the whole service to kind of illustrate it for us. Notice that they're not sitting up front where they usually do. They were afraid that I would somehow go ahead and do that. Samuel, you'd probably do it, wouldn't you? No. <laughs> Very heavy, but a yoke. We'll talk about this as we go along today. We'll put it here. You know, the new yokes, it's just one little metal, it's a little metal piece with leather. You get the same point without the heaviness. The animals are probably, PETA probably came up with it, right? <laughs> just kidding. Last week we saw Jesus laid the hammer down on the people who had ministered to him. Jesus confronted the critics in verses 16 to 19. And then he condemned the rejecters of special revelation in verses 20 to 24. They had seen countless miracles, and yet they were not embracing Jesus. And Jesus explained that judgment was coming for these people who had rejected him and the revelation of him. In fact, he explained that the judgment would be worse for them than Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, the Sodom of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because Jesus had revealed himself to them. He had showed his glory to them. And Jesus reveals that there's degrees of judgment and these degrees of judgment are directly proportional to the amount of revelation of the gospel one has. There's one way to be declared right with God. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And the more one knows about who he is, Jesus, and what Jesus has done, determines the consequences for one's rejection of him. So take that as a warning, all of us, right? Then Jesus commends the sovereign God in his salvation. In verses 25 to 27, we read it just a little bit ago. He explained the Father's sovereign will revealed the glory of the Son to the least likely. Not the self-righteous, but the uh, infants, not the intelligent, not the ones that everybody would say, oh, you got it, you know everything. He, he showed himself to the least likely, the infants, the fishermen, the tax collectors, the sinners. The sovereignty of God and salvation was clearly laid out in Matthew eleven twenty five to 27. We saw the only one that gets the praise and glory for saving someone is God. He's the one we boast in. He is the one we glorify. He's the one we praise for saving. Right? Now today we look at Jesus' call to respond to the hope found in him. This paragraph here, these last three verses are... They emphasize the human responsibility side of salvation. 
It's an invitation, an open call to respond to the glory of Jesus, to repent and believe in Jesus. You say, well, I don't see repentance and belief or faith in this ver- these verses. Well, they're there. We'll talk about it as we go along. We see in our passage today, Jesus invites everyone to exchange the yoke of the law, the yoke of the law, for the yoke of Christ. Give up the yoke of trying to earn God's favor and salvation for the gracious yoke of Jesus Christ, that he provides salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the point. The yoke was a metaphor for the burden or the thing that would direct a person and guide a person. The Jews lived under the yoke of the law that if they would keep all the laws, somehow they could earn favor with God. And that was a heavy, heavy burden for them to hold. Jesus invites the people to replace that Heavy yoke with his light yoke. The light yoke of his grace. And salvation through faith alone in him. Our passage outlines very clearly, simply. The introduction to the invitation is found in the first verse. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then what he does is he just explains that. And he uses the yoke as the illustration of that introductory invitation. The invitation to come to Jesus. The explanation is found in verses 29 to 30. I want to unfold this passage, however, a little different today. I'm not going to walk down through it. I'm going to ask questions of the text so we can understand what it means a little better. I'm going to ask four questions from the text in order to understand fully Jesus' invitation to all of his people. There are four questions we get answered from this passage that should motivate all of us to pursue Jesus with all our hearts. Let's start with this first question. What is Jesus' primary invitation? What is his primary invitation in this passage? Well, notice there are three commands in the passage. Look at your passage. Look at your Bibles. You can see them. The three commands are, come to me, verse 28. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you. And then 29 again, learn from me. Learn from me. All three of these commands illumine or describe Jesus' call to believe in him, to turn to him, to trust him. The words, uh, the word faith alone, we often hear faith alone. It, it is faith alone. The word faith, however, is used in the Bible and described with synonyms numerous times throughout the Bible. The idea of saving faith is described as receiving, coming to, believing, faith, trust, dependence, commitment. All those words are associated or synonymous with saving faith. Here, Jesus uses a metaphor And the concept of come to me to illumine the idea of believing in him. To repent, to turn, and to trust in him. 
as we know, saving faith in Jesus is not just an intellectual pursuit, right? It's not just knowing a bunch of facts about who Jesus is. It's a commitment. It's a trust. It's a dependence. It's a belief. A wholehearted belief in Him. Here He says, first, come to me. Come to me. This command implies a separation from Jesus before the invitation. In other words, he says, come to me, which implies what? They're not with him. So he's inviting them. He's saying, come to me. Second, the imperative suggests a a turn towards him. In order for you to come to him, you might be going somewhere else, going into different directions or somewhere else. Come to me. Turn in my direction. Come to me. Third, this exhortation encourages a pursuit of Jesus. A pursuit of Him. To look to Him. To pursue Him. To think on Him. To meditate on Him. To believe in Him. This pursuit includes the mind, intellectually. We're looking at Him. We're studying Him. We're perceiving Him. The mind, the will, our determination, our choice, our desire our commitment, and then even our emotions. It's wholehearted. It's not just a fake thing. It's not just something that we do so people notice us. It's an all-wholehearted commitment to come to Him. That's what He's saying in this. Come to Me. It's an open invitation. And Jesus reveals the direction of His pursuit. He says, come to Me. Me. You say, well, Mike, I know. I see it. I read it. Well, that's profound. (laughs) He doesn't say, go to God. He says, come to me. That's profound. Because only God can offer this invitation. This is the God-man speaking. He's saying, come to me. The people should have just like, wow, do you understand what you're saying? You're saying, take off the law and come to me? Only God could say that. Only God could say that. Like Jesus had said in the previous section, He had sovereign authority. He had just announced, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. Why? Because the Trinity knows each other intimately, perfectly. And nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. How do we know the Father? We come to Him. Right? What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Come to me. That's a profound statement. That is a a statement saying, come to your Master, your Lord. Your Savior. No one can say that but Jesus alone. The next command here that he uses to illustrate his invitation to believe in him is take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. Jesus used this metaphorical exhortation because it illustrates well the call of saving faith in him. Now, I admit to you that this heavy yoke, if it was like this, this would be a hard thing to do. 
They understood this, though. They understood what yokes were like. They understood the difference between a heavy yoke and a light yoke. They knew exactly what this was about. Obviously, Jesus doesn't mean he literally has a yoke for everyone to walk around with, all of his disciples. It's a metaphor, a word picture. And it's all used to illustrate his invitation to come to him. Second, the imagery does point, however, to a new relationship with Jesus. He says, take my yoke. It implies what? They had a yoke. They're going to get a new yoke. An exchange of yokes. It's his yoke. The imagery points to a new relationship with Jesus. Replacing the one yoke for a different yoke. The yoke of the law and the burden of the law, and the burden of somehow trying to achieve and be good enough for God to accept us. How many of you have been there? You know that yoke. How many of you know the pain of that yoke? How many of you know that yoke this week? I know that yoke this week. How many of you read your Bibles this week? Don't raise your hand. Hopefully everybody. If you did, the weight of the law... Or the weight of God's requirements and His righteousness. Did anybody get burdened this week? I got burdened by it. Not that I was trying to achieve it, but I felt the weight of it. And if I somehow thought that I had to achieve it to earn God's favor, how much more heavy would it have been? It would have killed me. What if we had to obey God's law perfectly? To be saved. I think the church would be empty. So what happens? Because after all, that's what Roman Catholicism does. They set up a whole bunch of traditions and man-made laws and rules and regulations and say this is what you have to do in order to achieve it. Eventually, what do they have to do? Throw all the rules out. That's what they do. They basically make it. There's escape hatches. Easier ways. Now anything goes. That's what's happened. Now you can be a Muslim by the Pope's standard and still be saved. You can be an atheist and still go to heaven one day. This is what they say as the world tries to come together and oppose God with their false religions. But this imagery points to a new yoke. A yoke that's his yoke, Christ's yoke. The imagery does carry with it a heart of submission and servanthood and humility. By saying, take my yoke, he's saying what? Submit to me. Humbly come to me. Take my direction and guidance. Go where I say to go. Do what I say to do. Follow me. Obey me. Come to me. It does imply humility. It implies a response of wholehearted faith in him. Doesn't mean that we earn our salvation by obeying him. But he says the commitment of the heart should be to come to him and submit to him and embrace him and trust him. That's what he's saying. In fact, he says his yoke, as we will see, is easy and his burden is light. 
talk about that in a little bit. The third command here, notice Jesus uses to explain this commitment to him, his faith in him, this invitation to the people is learn from me. Learn from me. First again, obviously this points to a changed relationship for the ones who are responding to Jesus. They become learners. They become students. They become followers of Jesus. A true believer in Jesus is someone who is being taught by Jesus. He's using his word to illumine by the spirit to reveal the glory of God to us. He teaches his believers, his followers. We learn from him. True believers in Jesus are growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus all the time, aren't we? We are learners, all of us, aren't we, that are followers of Jesus. We're learning more and more about him. And arguably the most important thing in our life, you tell me if I'm wrong, is to know him more. That's what we want, don't we? I just want to know him more. That is our life. That's our desire. We're a learner from the Lord. He teaches us through his word. Repentance and faith in Jesus results in an insatiable desire to know Jesus more. I can't get enough of him. I want more of him. We have a desire to know him and then to make him known to the world we live in. Second, this command to learn from me implies Jesus is ready and able to teach his followers. It means Jesus is there and he's ready and willing. He wants us to grow and know him more. Isn't that good news? What a savior. If you don't get a hug from this message today, believers, you're not listening. God wants you to know him more. Jesus wants to teach you more about his glory. He wants to open up the glory of himself and show himself to you. I want to know it. How about you? It's my lifelong pursuit to know the glory of God and my Savior wants to show me his glory. He's a teacher, and he completes what he starts in his followers. Third, the command implies being a follower of Jesus requires time. Learner. <laughs> it doesn't mean what? Learned. <laughs> Got it all. Doesn't happen immediately. It doesn't happen right at the exact moment that you become converted. Oh, yeah, I get it all. No, it doesn't work that way. You know, we become followers of Jesus. We become learners from him. He teaches us and continues to teach us. And we continue to grow. This is a long journey, isn't it, believer? All of us are learning continuously. And it's a long process. And you know, as wild as it sounds, I, would be, I wouldn't be surprised if we got to heaven and we continued to learn even in heaven. You know, some people say, well, you get there and you, you get it all and you get it and you understand it all. I don't know. I think you understand a lot. But I could see God continually to show us the glory of God 
and reveal new things about him and how amazing he is. I think, I don't know for sure, but I'm almost positive it's going to be like, wow, wow, whoa, amazing for eternity. Can you imagine, beloved? What is the, I don't know about you, but one of the best parts of my walk with the Lord are those moments like last night as the whole sermon just came together and I saw the glory of God again. And I'm like, wow, wow. Isn't that what walking with God's about? You see another glimpse of his glory and you go, wow, (laughs) you're teaching me. You're showing me. (laughs) I want more of that. How about you? I can't wait until the day I'm with him and the sinful flesh that keeps me from always basking in that glory is gone and all I get to do is pursue him with wholehearted allegiance all the time. He opens up the glory of himself to me. Jesus says, come to me and learn from me. And we all in the room say, okay, I want to be there. (laughs) Can I sit on the front row? (laughs) Show me more. It won't be this cold either. So the invitation is a, a call by the Savior to believe in him, receive him. Trust Him, pursue Him, embrace Him, turn to Him, submit to Him, learn from Him. True faith in Jesus involves all-out pursuit of Him, humbly submitting to Him and learning from Him, exchanging our old commitments to trust and depend upon ourselves and our own abilities to Him and His ability and His glory. That's what it's about. His yoke is light compared to mine that I wore. That one that I wore was the law that I had to somehow achieve some standard in order for God to accept me. Impossible. Because my standard was always what? Way lower than his real righteous standard. Way lower. I thought it was high. Before I was a believer, I thought it was just going to church every once in a while. It was ringing some bells as an acolyte in the Episcopal Church. It was doing exactly what the priest said to do by pouring the wine exactly on the exact spot on his fingers. It was taking the piece of bread on my tongue exactly how he says to take it. It's that precision. If I do that, then somehow, some way, God will... Overlook my sin. It'll make up for what I've done wrong. Impossible yoke. True faith, however, involves a lifelong, eternal pursuit to know and enjoy the glory of God revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. So what was Jesus' primary invitation here? It was to repent and believe in Him. It was to trust Him. This was one profound invitation. 
It's like two others that I thought of as I was thinking. Jesus said to them in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. That one sounds similar, doesn't it? Different metaphor, but same concept. Developing. Or how about John 7.37? I love this one. Now, on the last day... The great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Did he mean, if you, hey, you need some water, come up here, I'll give you some water. No, he meant come to him. He's the all-satisfying water from God, the spiritual water. Jesus invites the people. That's what he did in Come to Me in Matthew 11. And that's what he did in John 6. And that's what he does in John 7. He's inviting the people to come to him. Believe in him. Trust in him. Depend upon him. His invitation is for us today also. Everybody in the room, do you know who Jesus is? Do you know what Jesus has done? Please hear me. It's not about hearing a sermon and saying, oh, that was good. Respond in faith. Go to Christ. I'm I'm, I'm so afraid of messages like this. Sometimes I feel like what we do is we hear them and everybody's in the room. Yes, I agree. Yes, I agree. Oh, I get it. And then nothing happens. Do you actually... Fall on your knees and cry out to Him. Do you talk to Him? Do you abide in Him? Do you enjoy Him? Do you pray? Do you petition? Do you delight in Him? That's what we have to do. Listen, all I'm trying to do here is give you a taste of what it means. But then I want you to what? Go to Him. You have to respond. You have to respond by faith and pursue him. By the way, the pursuit of Jesus is not a one-time pursuit, is it? How many times do we come to Jesus? <laughs> it used to be when I was in the Baptist church growing up or after I'd just gotten saved, it was you come to me almost every invitation at the end of the service. You know what I'm talking about, right? How many of you... Even if you didn't come forward because you, you thought, well, i got to better make sure, so I'll go ahead and come to him again. Anybody? How many times did you pray that prayer? A couple hundred thousand times, right? At the end of the service, right? Praying, well, maybe, just, you know, I'm here again, Lord, here, you know, I'm not sure. Right? You know what I'm talking about. How about this? The invitation is daily, hourly, minute. How often do I come to Christ? Arguably, I'm coming to him all the time. I'm pursuing him all the time. Every time I stumble and bumble and fall down, cleaning myself hasn't cleaning myself up hasn't worked. Anybody in here? Does it work for you cleaning yourself up? No. I need him. I need him. No amount of self-righteousness has ever made me really righteous. I need Christ. 
you need him too. How many of you are confessing your sins daily? How many of you are actually saying, this was me, I'm here, I'm here again, I need you? Is the cross a one-time thing or is it a daily, ongoing pursuit? Oh, but I've already arrived! You wouldn't say that. Nobody in the room would say that, would you? Every time we're doubting, what is his petition, his invitation? Come to me. Every time we're hurting, every time we're suffering, every time we're struggling, what is his invitation to you? Come to me. Listen, and, and again, I say this with the, the kindness, and when you hear me, I love you. I can't be him to you. I don't have it. I can't forgive your sin. It's amazing how many people come to me and somehow think that I'm not Roman Catholic, but you are, I just need to hear you say I'm, you're forgiven. They don't say it, but they imply it. Go to Christ. Go to him, not me. How often? All the time. You probably need to do it already today, don't you? Or were there righteous people that came to church today? Everybody perfect in here? How many of you thought better of yourself than you should have on the way to church? All of us? I did? You. You. You mean you walked down that road thinking a little better of yourself than you should have? Yeah. Why? Because as much as I want to pursue and enjoy and delight in the holiness and glory of God every second of the day, I don't. And I sin way more than I want to admit. You're a sinner? Yeah, a sinner saint. I need Christ. By the way, if you think this pastor up here is somehow holy and better, you've missed it. It's only the grace of God that I don't fall completely away. It's God's grip on me. It's not my grip on him. Jesus wants himself to be the primary object of our pursuit, and he wants us to pursue him all the time. So the next question in our passage, who are those Jesus invites to come to him in saving faith? And he says it real clearly, all who are weary and heavy laden. Who are these weary and heavy laden that Jesus are referring to? The context points to the people who were weighted down by the law and the Pharisees. And the man-made traditions of the Pharisees. It was all those who had been burdened by guilt and shame of falling short of God's righteous standards revealed in the, in the law. And the reasonable man-made, or rather the unreasonable man-made rules of the scribes and lawyers. 
Jesus alludes to the burdens heaped upon the people by the religious elites in Matthew 23, 4. He states this, They tie up heavy burdens and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Matthew 23, 4. He also alludes to it in Luke eleven forty six. 46. But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh down men with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. This was the religion of the day, the self-righteous religion of works. It was crushing the people. It was destroying them. You know, Paul even alludes to this in Acts 15. After. Remember they were deciding what they would impose on the Gentiles and what they would require the Gentiles to do? Interestingly, keeping the Sabbath, which we'll talk about next week, is not mentioned in that section. Hmm. He says, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Hmm. What's this imply though? He's talking to the church. It implies what? That even the church could what? Slip back into that. Very easy, this idea, this concept of thinking that we somehow achieve right standing and earn favor by what we do. Do you understand that the old man in every single one of us still thinks that way? All of us think that way. We have that rooted in us. To somehow try to justify ourselves above everybody else because that's the easy way. This is the lie of the world. This is the lie of all the false religions of all the world. Everywhere you look, the human heart seeks to elevate themselves to their man-made gods. That accept them for something less than perfection and righteousness. That's what distinguishes Christianity from all other religions, right? What is it? Christ Jesus the Lord. Salvation in Him alone. By faith alone, not by what I do. That's the distinction. Listen, beloved. We want rules to somehow earn God's favor. We especially want rules we are able to achieve to bring favor with God and man we want those rules. You say, oh yeah, I like those rules as ones that I can achieve. Yeah, that's, that's our heart. To somehow elevate ourselves. But it's actually a burden. It's a burden on those that live around us. Oh, hear me. It is our sinfulness that wants to justify ourselves Above others. But then when God is merciful to us. He shows us how totally incapable we are. Of living up to the true righteous standard. Right? If we really bring out the yoke of the law. Everybody in the room can't even bear under it for a second. Can we? It's much heavier than this yoke. 
It's righteousness. You must be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. Anything that's not of faith is sin. Boy, that, as Brendan and I were talking that week, this week, boy, that convicts us a lot. How many of you are dependent upon and seeking the Lord for everything that you do all the time? Every second of the day. How many of you ever do something without even considering God? Is that sin? We're not depending upon Him. We're not seeking Him. We're not abiding in Him. There's many things that we say, Well, I didn't know. Well, why didn't you talk to Him first? Why didn't you pursue Him first before you did it? Is ignorance an excuse for sin? Is that a heavy yoke? Is anybody in here crushed by it? I am. I need hope. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. We see our sinfulness, right? We recognize our shame and we become weary and heavy laden. Guilt, conviction. When we recognize just how far we fall short of God's glory. How many of you have those moments in your week where you blow it and you're just like, you feel so ashamed and burdened by that? You know what I'm talking about, right? Am I the only one? You're like, oh, why? Why? Here I am again, why? So who's the invitation to? All of us. All of us who are weary and heavy laden and burdened down by the righteousness God requires. I need Christ. We're crushed. We're like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. The load on the pack, on the back, is overwhelming. But we're like a cow with a heavy yoke like this one, being driven by a ruthless farmer in the heat of the summer with no water. Oh, I'm dying. What do I do? It's amazing. It's amazing how long we, even as Christians, can somehow think, well, I'll just trudge along a little longer and I'll somehow clean myself up and throw this yoke from me by somehow being good enough. That's what we think. We actually think that way. We'd say, wait, I'm going to stop doing that. I'll do this, 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 and this. I'll get 15 accountability partners. I'll burn every anything that ever points to anything. I'll isolate myself completely from all forms of sin. I'll never watch TV again. Chuck that TV. I'll never watch a movie. I'll never open a cell phone. I will not have a smartphone. I'm getting rid of it all. I'm burning it all. 
I'm going to rescue myself from this yoke. That's what we think. That's what we think. And he says, come to me. Don't get mad at yourself. Don't try to fix yourself. Go to him. It's encouraging, isn't it? can be wearying at times. We see our total inability to be righteous like we should be and we ought to be and the burden becomes overwhelming. But Jesus invites us to come to him. Exchange the yoke of the law trying to earn his favor for his grace and his kindness and his goodness and his work. Turn to him for hope and forgiveness, and holiness. This is our Savior. He's all about hope. Why? Because He loves His own. (laughs) Remember, Jesus didn't come the first time into the world to judge the world, but He came that the world might be saved through Him. Now, does this mean that we then walk around unrighteous? No, no. We take his yoke upon us and he gives us grace and guidance and teaches us and directs us and we walk in righteousness as we trust him and we depend upon him and we come to him. He works in us. Does this make sense? I don't see a lot of yeses. Our biggest problem is when we hit bottom, we often either seek an excuse for our sin or we try to climb out of the guilt by another way. The answer is, humbly pursue Jesus. Come to Jesus, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. Third, What is the promise for those who humbly seek the Lord Jesus? It's clear. Look at this. Wow, isn't this beautiful? Verse 28, and I will give you rest. How many of you love rest? I love rest. (laughs) Yeah. And you will find rest for your souls. Look at the glory of this promise from our Savior. It's beautiful. Everyone who is burdened, weary, crushed by their sin and their weight of God's holy, righteous standard in the law and realizing you can't do it, you fall short, you can't accomplish it, you can't earn favor. If they come to Jesus, if they humbly embrace Him, if they repent and believe in Him, if they trust in Him, He will give you rest. You'll find rest for your souls. This is some of the best news in all the world, isn't it? It's why I come, right? Is it why you come? You come to hear the good news. There's good news. Rest is not only the absence of uncertainty, fear, anxiety, and despair. 
Rest is a peace of mind and heart and soul. It is knowing we are forgiven and reconciled to God. And He is our Father and He's our Abba Daddy and we love Him and He loves us. This rest is an assurance of salvation, of deliverance, of freedom from judgment. It's knowing that I can curl up in my father's lap and know that he loves me. It's that rest. Isn't repentance wonderful? Repentance is beautiful. It's great. For when I pursue my Lord, my sins are forgiven. And he loves me. And he cares for me. What a good God. What a good Savior. Listen, friends. This rest is not found by self-reformation, as I said. This peace and rest is not found by self-loathing and shaming. This rest is found by humbly approaching the living Savior. With confession and trust and dependence and looking to Him. And this pursuit, like said, is ongoing. We're constantly learning just how much we need Him and how much we need forgiveness. Rest is found where? The foot of the cross in our Savior's arms when we look to Him with handfuls of of guilt and shame, we cry out, Oh Lord, take this from me. Are we saying that? Here I am. Here I am. My doubt, my lack of forgiveness, my anger, my bitterness, take it, Lord. Forgive me. I need you. Save me. Sanctify me. Fix me. Because only you can. I can't. Help me rest in you. I'm your servant. Do with me whatever's necessary to help me to not fall into that sin again. Wow, what a Savior, right? And what does he do? He gives us rest. Rest for our weary souls. (laughs) I think this is the best part of the Christian walk. What about you? It's that moment when I'm completely at the end of myself and I cry out and I'm reminded that he forgives me when I call out to him. I kind of wish I could just stay there all the time. How about you? It's just such a peaceful place, isn't it? It's that place that knows that God loves me and I'm his child. Let me ask you a question. When you're at that spot, if he says, hey, jump up and go over there, he's not literally saying that, but if he were to imply or work in your heart, 
go over there and witness to this person, would you go, Oh, what a misery! Oh, what a yoke! Got to talk to somebody about Jesus. We wouldn't do that, would we? When you're at the height of seeing and knowing and enjoying His glory and knowing that your sins are forgiven, let me ask you a question. Is that when you want to witness? David talks about this in Psalm 51. That's the point that I will then go and tell the others about you. I want to tell everybody. Why do you think I'm always up here like this? Why am I so happy? Why am I doing this? Why do I look like a lunatic up here? Crying out to you to believe in Jesus. Come to Him. Because I had these moments this week. I was reminded that there's rest in Him. And my sins are forgiven. There's nothing I'd rather do than to tell you about this. I would rather be here than any cruise ship forever. This is the greatest place in the world to be right now. Telling you about how good he is. Is it a yoke? (laughs) It's light. It's easy. It ain't a burden. Even when they're suffering, it isn't a burden. Why? Because my sins are forgiven. And I'm at rest with Him. Oh, listen to me, beloved. You will not understand this passage if your life and your your perspective is all about here and now and this. What is easy about suffering? Nothing. But if your perspective is Him and His glory and what you will do with Him for eternity and the glory we will see in Him forever and ever and ever, guess what? The yoke becomes nothing. Being guided by him becomes very light and easy. If he is big, the world becomes small. If he is glorious, the suffering becomes small. Following him, obeying him even to death becomes a privilege. That's why we can trust him. He is faithful. He's a gentle and humble Savior who condescended to come to us. Just for the record, and we'll close with this. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why is his yoke easy and his burden light? The answer is because he took our yoke. Did you hear me? He did it. We couldn't. But he did. 
<laughs> it's the great exchange again. It's what we talked about in 2 Corinthians 5, right? He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might have the righteousness of God. That we might become the righteousness of God. What's the point? That he took our yoke to the point of death, death on a cross. So that we might take his yoke, the yoke of grace and kindness and forgiveness in him. What a great truth. Do you see how profound this is? Every one of us should memorize these scriptures. Please memorize these scriptures. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Because he took the impossible yoke. And he wore it to the cross. And he died in our place. And he rose from the dead. So does it cause... Does it beckon us to humbly come to him? It does. Does his invitation require us to serve him? Yes. Does it involve repentance and faith and dependence? Yes, yes, yes. Is he worth it? Oh, oh yeah. He's good. So if you're here today and you don't know him as the one who took your yoke and you haven't submitted to him and come to him, turn to him today. Go to Christ. Cry out to him. He will forgive you. He is gentle and humble of heart. Meek. And kind. What a savior, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Glorious, glorious, glorious. What a good God you are. What a good savior you are. You are our rock and our redeemer. We love you. We need you. Mm. We come to you with our weary and heavy hearts and we ask you to forgive us and restore us and give us rest for our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.